0: Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio and happy Thanksgiving. I hope that you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I see lots of new faces with us today and I know that we have visitors maybe many for whom this is their first experience with First Presbyterian Church but others who have come home for the holidays and I hope that you will make a take an opportunity to greet one another in the name of Jesus Christ and welcome one another, maybe make some of those new connections. And if you are new with us this Sunday, if you are seeking a church home and perhaps would like to, to consider making your, your, uh, joining your ministry to ours, we would love to talk to you about that. Also, if you are just visiting with us this Sunday, and, we're, and this is just a, a single time that you're going to be here, we just hope that whenever you're with us, you'll plan on making First Presbyterian of San Antonio your church home away from home. So we are glad that you are here this morning, and this is an interesting weekend for us and for the church calendar in many ways. Uh, You may may know that uh, that this Sunday is is not the first Sunday of December. It's the last Sunday of November, and it's one of those interesting times when we have Thanksgiving and a Sunday in between, and then we have the the church season of Advent. So it's kind of like a bonus Sunday in here. And, and yet it's still a good time to begin preparing for Christmas. Uh, as you all know, Advent is our season of Christmas preparation, but that starts next week. But we're going to go ahead and, and go ahead and start planning and start working on some things today. I mean, after all, all the stores had their Christmas decorations up. You probably have your Christmas decorations up. So why not start talking about Christmas today? That's what we're going to do. And so this morning we're going to we're going to start our Advent series just a week early, and that's good because we've got a lot to cover this week and in the weeks to come. So I'm just going to go ahead and give you a warning this morning that we're going to get deep this morning. We are going to, to really dig into a, a biblical concept and, a, and some, uh, some particular stories that I hope will interest you and I hope will inspire you, but, but this is all necessary groundwork to really understand the heart of the Christmas story. And we're going to start today by talking a little bit about the book of Luke. So if we we look at the book of Luke, the book of Luke tells us that after his resurrection on Easter morning, Jesus spent 40 days on earth, 40 days before he ascended into heaven and returned to his place at his father's side. Now, before he left, Jesus used those 40 days to prepare his disciples for their life-changing and world-changing mission. And so we read that in the last chapter of his gospel, Luke wrote this, Luke chapter 24. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. For 40 days, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That's the whole Old Testament. Now, what was he doing? What was his purpose behind this? For 40 days, Jesus was giving them the story behind the story. He was giving them the gospel before the gospel. For 40 days, Jesus walked them through every paragraph, through every sentence of the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi. Connecting the dots and fitting the puzzle pieces together so that they could see once and for all the big picture of God's plan of redemption from the beginning. And so with that in mind, where does the Christmas story really begin? Does it begin in the Gospel of Luke with the angel Gabriel's visit to Mary when he says, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Is that where the Christmas story begins? It starts before that. You can even go way back to the book of Isaiah. The, the prophet Isaiah says this, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which Matthew explains to us, means God with us. But you know what? Today, we're going to go even farther back. At this time of year, we're used to hearing those familiar prophecies of Christmas, those promises that the Lord made that he would send a Savior to his people. But today, our scripture reading comes from the not-so-familiar Christmas prophecy that's found in Genesis chapter 3. Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Turning to to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. You can find them in your your bulletin or in the screens behind me. But here's what Genesis 3, 14 and 15 says. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Now, what is this passage talking about, and how could it possibly connect to Christmas? Well, the promise of Christmas actually began in the beginning, in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. The first and second chapters of Genesis began with the epic description of the creation of the world and the birth of humanity. And the story goes like this. You're familiar with it. God gave to the first man, Adam, and to the first woman, Eve, a garden called Eden in which to dwell. And in this garden, every physical need was met. They had the freedom to do anything. They were even allowed, no, they were even encouraged to eat from the tree of life. And if they did this, they would enjoy life forever. And Adam and Eve were invited to enjoy all that the garden had to offer except for one thing. God told them of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Enter the serpent. And from here on, from here on out in the sermon you are free to boo and hiss whenever I mention him. Enter the serpent. Good. Now, Genesis 3 doesn't tell us much about Satan, about his origin, about his history, about his agenda, but it does tell us a lot about his character. Satan is a liar and a destroyer. His desire was to destroy God's creation and to kill God's children. And Satan did two things. First, he lied to them. And second, he manipulated their love for God. Let's take a look at the story. First, Satan asked, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve answered, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Do you see what Satan did there? He He set up a false premise. He set up a straw man that would lure Eve into this conversation. But then Satan simply lied to her. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. I mean, right there, the father of lies called God a liar. He wanted to make her think that she couldn't really trust God. He was sowing doubt in her mind, much as he tries to do with us. Moreover, he kept feeding that doubt. Satan said, as a matter of fact, you'll not only not die, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan was insinuating that God's lying to you, and on top of that, he's keeping the best stuff for himself. He's keeping you from the best prize that the garden has to offer, the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent was trying to undermine her faith in God. He wanted her second-guessing the Lord, and he wanted her to believe that God can't really be trusted. But at the same time, Satan was also manipulating her in a more subtle way. Listen to what he says. You will be like God. Satan was manipulating her love and her affection for God by twisting that love into envy. You see, Satan knew the children's love for their father. He knew their love for God. And so... He exploited that love. He took their love for God, a good thing, and twisted it into something evil. Satan made Eve turn her eyes from God to herself. Instead of being satisfied with what God had given her and who God had made her to be, She wondered, why can't I be like God? Satan perverted her love for God into wanting to be like God, pushing that wanting to be God. So Adam and Eve took an apple from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and bit deeply into the fruit of disobedience. And they made the fatal mistake that people still make today. They thought that somehow godliness could be achieved without obedience. They thought that it was possible to be good without being faithful. And so Satan told Adam and Eve that they could be like God. In effect, that they themselves could be God. But Satan's pitch sounds like one of those commercials you see on TV that Advertises vitamins or a hormone therapy or some drug. The commercial tells you about all the great benefits, but then kind of mumbles through or puts all the side effects in small print. You may lose all your hair. Or you may experience dizziness or develop the sensation of a phantom third arm or whatever it may be. The point is, there are going to be side effects, and one of them is going to be that you could die. So the fruit was beautiful, it looked healthy, and it was supposed to make her wiser. And Eve bought into the sales pitch and ignored the side effects. And she and Adam ate. And you know what? Adam and Eve got what they wanted. They got an awareness of good and evil. What they didn't expect was that the first evil they would recognize was their own sin and their own shame. Then their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife Hid themselves from the, from the presence of the Lord God. Can I step aside for a second and just make an important distinction? Louis Grizard, the late great humor columnist for the Atlanta Journal Constitution, once made an important distinction. He said that there's a difference between naked and naked. Okay? Grizzard says that naked means to be nude to have no clothes on. It means you're not wearing any clothes. Naked, on the other hand, means that you're not wearing any clothes and you're up to something. (laughs) And so, Adam and Eve were not just naked, they were naked. (laughs) And the story of Adam and Eve tells us that the first time that two human beings were caught naked, When they were caught, they blamed each other, and they blamed the snake. They even blamed God, passing the buck and refusing personal responsibility for their sin. You know, I wonder how would this have played out if at that moment they had just repented? One can only wonder because that's not the way it happened. They were naked, and they were guilty, and they were ashamed. And for the first time in their lives, they were afraid. And they had reason to be afraid. Satan told them that they would not die, but God had warned them that disobedience would lead to death, and it did. Death came to them, even though it came slowly. But from that moment... Like cancer, mortality set in and began to break down their bodies and their lives. They who had been given eternal life had it taken away and then were expelled from paradise. In one act of deception and disobedience, they lost everything. And from that point on, creation fell from paradise, fell from Eden, and became a world of violence and disease and hunger and toil and struggle and death. And so what do we learn first from this story? We learn that the serpent was the first great enemy of humanity. He is the one who destroyed everything. It was the serpent who introduced humanity to sin and death. It was the serpent who destroyed our relationship with God. It was the serpent who destroyed our peace in the garden So that now our world is as described by philosopher Thomas Hobbes who said that nature is red in tooth and claw and that life is nasty, brutish, and short. And it was Satan who gave us death and destroyed our hope of eternal life. The first great calamity and crisis Of the human race was sin. After the first enemy Satan had introduced us to sin, we discovered that this is the first great calamity of our existence. God's children had defied God and now where they had been happy they were hurt. They were hurt because they had been happy and now they were afraid. Where they had been confident, now they were ashamed. Where they had been close with God, now they were estranged. And for the first time in their lives, they felt the weight of guilt. They felt the weight of shame. For the first time in their lives, they were estranged from God. And for the first time in their lives, they felt the fear of death creaking through their joints, seeping into their minds. But what we read here, and it's not easily apparent because there's so much, so much loss in this, but we, if we're careful, we can see it. We see that God, even at this point, did not give up on his creation. He did not abandon his children or abort the project. He didn't quit and start over. Instead, let's look again at Genesis chapter 3 at what happens. In Genesis chapter 3, we read that the Lord spells out Adam and Eve's punishment. Life is no longer going to be an easy paradise and their eternity is going to give way to mortality and they will die. But he also then speaks directly to the serpent and pronounces condemnation and doom On the great liar, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. But if we look carefully, if we read carefully those verses we read this morning, we will also see that in these words there's a glimmer of hope. As the birth of a star, so faint and so distant that we barely notice it against the darkness. The Lord said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent's deception. And humanity's rebellion was not going to be the death of a dream. Rather, the Lord said, oh no, this is the beginning of a fight. The Lord said, this is the beginning of a fight. You may have defeated them this time. But one day, a descendant of the woman will crush you under." His feet. This is God's first promise of a Savior, the first prophecy of Messiah. And the promise was this The serpent has done you great harm, but one day the serpent will be destroyed, the serpent that poisons. The serpent that lies, that sows distrust, that constricts your freedom, that divides us from God, that wounds us, that kills us. It will be destroyed. But how? He says, one day someone will come and defeat the serpent. It will be destroyed by the offspring of the woman. This is the first promise of a Savior. This prophecy is talking about the coming of a Savior. And therefore, it is talking about the coming of Jesus, and therefore, it is about Christmas. We're used to hearing the more obvious prophecies about the Messiah. But the first prophecy of Messiah's coming must not be overlooked. So let's connect the dots. First, the serpent will not be destroyed by an angel or by some other supernatural warrior of God, but by the offspring, specifically by a son, if you take a close look at the pronouns. In other words, a human son. The prophecy of the offspring is fulfilled in Jesus the Son. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The offspring of the woman who inflicts this decisive defeat on the serpent is Christ. He is not an angel. He's not a demigod. He is a real human being. The baby in the manger, the carpenter from Nazareth, the crucified teacher on Calvary, the Word of God who became man. As Paul said, he was born of woman, born under the law. As Hebrews says, he himself likewise partook of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. He is the offspring. He is the son of God, but he is also the son of man. He is Emmanuel, he is God incarnate, God in the flesh, God made man. Second, the prophecy says that the son will defeat the serpent and destroy him. The Lord says, he will bruise your head. The Christmas prophecy begins with the promise of a fight. The Apostle John wrote, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning, and the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. And we see the fear of the demons, of the devil. As we read in the Gospels that the demons wailed before Jesus and they cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. This is the promise of the son that by his righteousness he will crush the head of the serpent and set us free from the constricting coils that entangle and the fangs that poison us and pollute our lives. But the third part of the prophecy is that we see that the offspring's victory will not be without cost. The son will suffer for us in this fight because the serpent will bruise his heel. Jesus' victory over the power of Satan and the power of death did not come in a glorious Hollywood battle scene but on an ugly Roman cross. In a later prophecy, Isaiah would put it this way, he was despised and rejected by men, For thousands of years, all that humanity had to rely on was an obscure promise that a Savior was coming. It doesn't make any sense or mean anything until we connect the dots. But in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see this prophecy fulfilled. And what the ancients only saw as hope, we count finished, as a done deal. The Savior has come. Satan's power has been broken, and one day he will be destroyed once and for all. On Easter morning, when Jesus walked out of the tomb, he defeated death and broke its power over us. And when Christ returns, Paul says, in one final stroke, Jesus will destroy it once and for all the thing that we fear most, our own death and the deaths of those that we love will finally be erased. The serpent and the threat of death will finally be crushed. Now why does this matter? And this prophecy is so obscure, it's so remote. By itself, it may seem like there's not a lot here for us. I mean, you could read these verses a hundred times and never see the connection. But it's relevant because it is the first promise that God will send a Messiah who will destroy humanity's first enemy, Satan, and undo our foundational calamity, sin. And it matters because our world is broken. From Genesis 3 to this very day, creation is fallen from the state of paradise of Eden and has become a world of violence and disease and hunger and toil and struggle and death. It's a world of anger and anxiety, of guilt and shame, of fear and abuse. And it was utterly without hope until the coming of Christ. For us, Genesis 3.15 is the first promise that God will send a Savior to rescue you, to rescue me, and set us free from the poison, from the wounds, from the constriction and the lies and the division of the devil. Most of all, it's a promise that God not only cares about us and about our world, but he cares about you, and that the sin that binds us and poisons us will not be allowed to stand. But what it also means is that even though Christ has come into the world, we still need Him to come into our lives. So let me ask you this. Not just how is the world, but how is your world? Has the Savior come into your world? What's wounding you? What's constricting you? What's poisoning you? You. What's deceiving you? What's dividing you from the love and the hope and the promise? The God who loves you. The purpose of Christmas and the Christmas story is to show how God fulfilled His promise to defeat the first enemy and restore us through the coming of a Savior, His Son, Jesus Christ. This promise is not just for history. It's not just for people back then. It's not just for other people. It's for you. Jesus was born to give us the peace that we're all supposed to have, setting us free from our guilt and our shame and our fear. He was born to give us back the eternal life that you and I were born to have. And he came to restore the relationship with God that God created us to have. And what that means is that we are free to be free. We don't have to live imprisoned, constricted, poisoned by the serpent anymore. We are free to live as free people until Christ comes again. Free of guilt and fear and shame. And free to live free of the fear of death. This may not be the whole Christmas story. It's not even the whole gospel, these two verses. It's not even the whole gospel. But it is the beginning. And for centuries, the people of God waited for the coming of the Savior, the one who would defeat our oldest and greatest enemy. And the good news is we don't have to wait for him any longer. We don't have to wait for him to change our lives. Because for us, the offspring has won and the Savior has come. Will you pray with me? Oh God, you made a promise at the beginning and you kept that promise. Our world was fallen and you sent a Savior. And one day He will return and restore your creation. But Lord, in the meantime we are free to live freely. But we need the Son in our lives. We need Him to set us free. Lord, for any man or woman or child who is here today who does not yet know the freedom of Christ, Lord, shine your light. Declare your truth. Open the door. And Lord, just change their hearts to invite you in. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.